Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. This episode of Victor's Children is about the politics of transgender oppression and liberation, and I'm very happy to be speaking with Jules Joanne Gleason, co-editor of the book Transgender Marxism. So could you just introduce yourself to listeners, Jules? Hi, it's so nice to join you. Um, I'm a writer and an editor and a comedian based currently in Vienna in Austria, but originally I'm from London. I've lived various other places (laughs) uh, over the past 10 years. So um, yeah, well, that's uh, that's the basics. Anything more specific you want to? No, ask? that's that, that's great. I should have thought. I uh, I didn't think about asking you about the comedian side of what you do, um, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. Um, maybe we'll we'll start by talking a bit about gender. And so, could you start us off with some thoughts about how you think we should understand gender from a broadly historical materialist perspective? Yeah. So gender is an interesting one because I feel like increasingly. Increasingly, gender is becoming something which is controversial to even name or something which is increasingly controversial to even talk about. So when we're going to try and talk about it from a historical materialist point of view, I think one of the things that's helpful to do is kind of identify two different origin points, um, which like of late, (laughs) these two different origin points have kind of um, uh, been treated in various different ways by different people. So um, the first one is sort of like the mid 20th century, like sexological account of gender, um, which comes primarily out of the corpus of one uh, one guy, a New Zealander actually, based in Johns, Ho- Johns Hopkins uh, University in the US. So that's um, John Money. And um, John Money was kind of using, uh, using this term gender in fact, the full formulation he was using was gender identity and role, um, or slash role, uh, as kind of one way of trying to work out how to sort and how to categorize all of his patients. Um, so this was like one of the origin points of uh, gender, a pretty like, uh, well, it was part of like an overall system, which I can't really get into, but John Money had this vision of things where there were like seven ways of determining uh, how he could sort out his patients. And the first six were kind of more physiological things. And then the final seventh was this gender identity or role. So this is like um, the kind of sexological view and that's increasingly um, come back into scrutiny recently with works like recently Jules, uh, Jill Peterson, the other um, the other Jules of gender theory, <laughs> um, or maybe I'm the other one, I don't know. Uh, well, anyway, she's got this book, uh, Histories of the Transgender Child and Gil Peterson's kind of like looking at this, uh, uh, yeah, looking at this origin point of the term and ultimately kind of comes to the conclusion that uh, the like the term gender and like that whole framework is one which is uh, like thoroughly contaminated and thoroughly like um, imbricated, let's say, with um, uh, with that kind of historical baggage. But rather confusingly, there is then a second understanding of gender, and this kind of roughly speaking originates between um, 1975 and 1990. So 1975 is when uh, one lesbian feminist, Gail Rubin. Um, in her capacity as a a scholar of anthropology and sexuality, comes out with an essay entitled The Traffic in Women Notes on the Political Economy of Sex. Political economy has kind of quote marks in this title. Um, And Gail Rubin is the one who kind of makes this uh, sex-gender distinction, which we're familiar with. And I'm not going to go into how and why she does that in any great detail, but basically, long story short, she's like a scholar of kinship. Or she's theorizing the question of kinship, um, which is sort of following on from uh, structuralist like scholars like Claude Levi-Strauss um, and others. And so basically, she's trying to provide this this critical account of um, of kinship, like from a feminist point of view. So um, so this is like the secondary um, understanding of gender, which, like I say, the the one originally from sexology was sort of like a 
a rather different, a rather kind of more clinically oriented account. Whereas this view of gender is more about like sociolo sociology, um, anthropological theory, that kind of stuff. So most famously, this sex gender account then gets sort of like uh, cast into question <laughs> in the 1990s um, with Judith Butler's work. One thing to say about Judith Butler and Gail Rubin is they're both uh, lesbian feminists. They're both from different wings of um, the lesbian feminist movement. Originally, Judith Butler is a radical feminist and um, uh, Gail Rubin is one of the... Um, uh, well, she's like one of these sadomasochistic leatherdikes, um, which is a thing she writes about quite openly and uh, and publishes about throughout, throughout the 1980s. But at 1990, this kind of switches around because Judith Butler sort of uh, <laughs> turncoats their way into um, being associated with queer feminism with this work, Gender Trouble. And Gender Trouble's main thing is tackling this question of sex and gender. And basically, Butler is not satisfied with any kind of like easy or like uh, explanatory um, distinction between sex and gender. So this is kind of where we got like uh, the start of Butlerian gender theory. So basically what I'm trying to outline here is there's two, um, <laughs> two pretty radically different viewpoints right from the start. And one comes out of uh, clinical practice. It comes out of um, uh, both. Well, I guess the, it comes out of the medicalizing part of the academy, right? So it comes out of um, powerful research institutions, but these are like kind of psychiatric um, through to endocrinological, like medicalizing bodies. And then there's the second understanding, which is more like uh, anthropology, sociology kind of thing. So it's sort of like John Money and Gal Rubin through to Judith Butler. Those are like the two, like, <laughs> like, um, uh, like two, like, well, two overarching kind of understandings, which I think most people will kind of end up, <laughs> people will end up talking in one or, one, or, one or the other of those two terms, or they'll end up talking about um, one or other definition of gender. And um, yeah, it's quite interesting because sort of right from the start, uh, we're sort of left with this situation where like at this point, even using the term gender um, <laughs> becomes incredibly contentious. And it's especially contentious because like, uh, the term itself, like the term gender, is now a sort of rallying point for much of the right wing. And that's something which is true around the world. That's something which is true in France um, with opposition to gay marriage. It's something which is true in Brazil, where like evangelical Christians and um, uh, nationalist forces have kind of merged into each other. It's true in all kinds of places. It's definitely true in Eastern Europe, where uh, especially the Catholic Church and the conventions of bishops throughout uh, Eastern Europe, especially starting with Poland, have specifically like started to target gender ideology. So um, so when the right wing are kind of like, <laughs> when the right wing are kind of complaining and like protesting about us even talking about uh, things in terms of gender, it's sort of like, the first thing I guess we should ask is like, which which gender do they mean? Like what <laughs> what is the understanding which they find the most reprehensible? And um, yeah, maybe that's something we can discuss. I don't know. <laughs> that's something which like, I just want to open up as a concern. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, having done that kind of like uh, <laughs> genealogy, I suppose, uh, it kind of falls to me to say like, well, um, like, is this a term which we should be using at all? And I guess my answer is kind of provisionally yes, because I think it's quite interesting. Um, <laughs> it's quite interesting the potency it exactly has um, specifically, like, yeah, the potency as in, like, if if something is, like, so irritating and so intolerable to the far right that they don't even want us to talk about it, we have to identify, like, what is it which they don't want to be discussed. So maybe let's, <laughs> maybe let's move on a bit. I feel like that's enough of a entry point. <laughs> and it's certainly helpful, I think, the, the way you've described those different kind of streams of, of thought, which, of course, emerged completely outside of historical materialism, right? And so it's interesting to think about um, what people, you know, in the Marxist tradition of one way or the other, how they, how we come to relate to this concept. Um, but maybe we could move on then, yeah. And the next thing I wanted to, to ask you about is really the, the transformative impact of, of capitalism. Since there's been gender oppression in different forms long before before capitalism. Um, but what do you see as the most important ways that the development of and spread of capitalism has changed gender relations as a shorthand? Yeah, that's really, um, 
this is a question which sort of takes me uh, <laughs> takes me into my historical background. Um, so for those who uh, don't know my work, I'm mostly trained as a historian and mostly actually trained as a pre-modern historian. So my um, my academic background, such as it is, is focused uh, mostly around Byzantine history and other kind of pre-modern gender formations and sort of like taking comparative approaches to those. So, um, so yeah, so clearly, <laughs> clearly capitalism didn't buff um, gendered oppression or household patriarchy or whatever um, <laughs> easily problematized term we want to use uh, to address that, right? So, um, so clearly there were, to use the language I would use, <laughs> clearly there were patriarchal relations which underpinned modes of production prior to capitalism. So before we had our um, current setup of impersonal domination of capital and uh, exploitation and extraction of uh, abstract labor, uh, we we still nevertheless had other means of like gendered oppression and other ways that gender relations were kind of integrated into um, the extraction of other surpluses. So when I talk about like surpluses, um, I should probably just give a sketch of what I mean for people who don't really have any grounding in, in pre-modern political economy. So, um, so when I'm talking about surpluses prior to capitalism, um, we mostly, uh, we mostly kind of have in mind, um, well, from the context we have written sources about at least, um, we mostly have in mind, uh, kind of agrarian labor. So year in, year out, we would have, um, we would have, uh, communities of agrarian laborers who would be expected to uh, yield up uh, their surpluses for um, uh, basically for rendering usually into a kind of coinage, um, a coinage of one kind or another, which would then be uh, collected by some kind of central authority. So obviously this is a very <laughs> schematic and broad uh, stroke opinion. So what a coin would look like, what a uh, <laughs> what what kind of structures were there. Um, and what kind of authorities were like overseeing this process varied pretty wildly throughout the millennia. But nevertheless, you had kind of like an intergenerational procession of, of this kind of like continual extraction, which across a, a broad range of contexts would normally happen um, on some kind of annual or seasonal kind of basis. So there'd be a regular like interplay of some kind of central core and then like broader sort of provincial allotments, I suppose, of, of basically populations that were divided first and foremost into the surplus yield, which they were able to generate. So um, so this is like this is like something which was um, fixed in place and that's something which is exactly what allowed so many of these political formations to exist for centuries or millennia in one form or another. So um, what are the ways that um, the development and spread, <laughs> spread of capitalism changed gender? Well, um, very manifold, <laughs> and indeed, uh, like it's it's quite difficult to um, uh, yeah, it's even quite difficult to like like begin to describe the different ways which uh, this this was kind of like a transformative um, moment for uh, what we now call gender relations. I, I think you you know you did a great job of just summarizing a complex you know history you know in terms of you know tax collectors and people extracting. And tribute and so on from peasants in different different ways, um, and those people were engaged in agriculture and all that production was very much organized around the household, right? Um, but of course, the development of capitalism, which of course could itself be an entire episode, a whole series of episodes. Um, but if we assume that the development of capitalism, I would argue, you know, really first takes off and the, the new new mode of production becomes dominant in in England for the first time, you get the separation of production from the household in a new way, right? There's a, a capitalism transforms households and that this yeah. has an important impact on, on gender relations. I suppose the part which, uh, <laughs> the part which sort of provides a lot of curiosity and a lot of, um, a lot of ongoing uh, theoretical <laughs> consternation and also um, political struggle is that effectively um, what happens under capitalist systems is you have these, uh, yeah, you have these tasks and you have these um, bits of labor which need to be done in a fairly routinized um, fashion or at least a way which is uh, reliable across time. So you need like workplaces and workforces and designated training <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, but the the way that that, um, uh, the way that that, 
that reshapes things is that there's this kind of like ongoing question about the interchangeability of these um of these laboring units right it's like a specific workforce um is clearly needed for particular tasks like across time um and but on on the other hand there's this kind of interchangeability where um because the way these workforces are being um formalized or like routinized is people are kind of bringing their labor to market they're showing up to um try and sell their labor as proletarians there is this aspect where like um a lot of the time specific measures have to be taken if you want any uh other outcome besides like an intermixing and an intermingling of the people providing it so when i'm talking about like measures needing to be taken we could consider for example uh the british civil service which had very specific rules to do with the kind of roles which women were allowed to play within it um or another example would be uh specialized training so for instance for a time you had women being allowed to attend universities even being allowed to attend med medical schools with the proviso that they couldn't actually graduate as uh doctors or even bachelors or masters um from these institutions so you have like specific uh juridical measures put in place which um try and kind of like delimit uh which particular <laughs> which particular types of laborer get to end up in particular workforces um or to attempt that anyway so another obvious example um where this appears and this gets us into an even more complex question is uh systems of racialization and citizenship um so uh what you see in pretty much any um racializing system is that one of the things it tries to impact on is specific um specific tasks and specific roles uh being allocated to specific either citizenship um categories or to like uh racialized ones so you can see this obviously um <laughs> the deep south or south africa prior to the end of apartheid are the examples which people tend to talk about but there are other examples which are kind of like ongoing like for instance in malaysia um you have specific racial categories or specific religious categories with the two overlapping um as to who's even allowed to attend a university in many instances so you can see all kinds of these different um all kinds of these different like uh specific like privileging um <laughs> privileging in so far as they're providing like private laws and uh institutionalized perks and so on for different groups along um both gender and race/citizenship um so <laughs> what i'm trying to say here is like specifically you get these institutional fixes um to try and like uh segregate up the otherwise kind of like congealing and interchangeable nature of labor power right yeah and so there's obviously a, a lot of uh change that happens and i think it's worth mentioning this year just because i think a lot of people who are concerned about the politics of the present may not kind of fully appreciate just how dramatically gender relations have been transformed uh through these long periods of history and of course given your research on Byzantium and so on. Um, I guess this is stuff that would be obvious to you, but not, you know, most people don't have much uh, knowledge of that pre-modern era. So there's, there's actually a bit of chaos going on in the field of Byzantine studies around uh, gender and intersectionality right now, um, <laughs> which I'm not going to go into, but there was this recent book called Roland by, um, called Byzantine Intersectionality by a scholar called Roland Betancourt, um, who's a kind of U.S., queer theory informed uh art historian and um i've written a review of this book but i'm not really going to go into the whole controversy but as i say at this point like even even mentioning gender it has this expletive quality which um lots of people just can't abide and can't tolerate <laughs> and that's uh i think that's just kind of like one example of it um but like i say i'll try and avoid getting into the the thickets of that one <laughs> however um Yeah, right. So let's get back to your original question. So like we're in the midst of a a huge huge like shift or transformational moment, right? That's what you're saying. Right. Yeah, and I think it's precisely that that we should focus on now. I like to think about it in terms of cracks in the walls of the supremacist heteropatriarchal gender order, and it's one of the things that I think is is very hopeful in the world today. Um but so what do you think is actually going on? Obviously it's a huge question, but um in terms of what's what's happening um in terms of gender relations that's underpinning for example as you mentioned the, the catholic church and elements of the far right with their we could say crusade against what they call gender theory um and all the political changes that are happening on this terrain of of gender could you share some some of your thoughts on this moment that we're in now 
Yeah, of course. So, um, so what, what you're kind of seeing is I usually use the word like uh, denaturalization. Um, that's the overarching thing that's going on, I think. What you're seeing is like a denaturalization of all kinds of previously expected or conventionally kind of understood um, gender divides. And um, in a way, I feel like the right wing, like you mentioned, the Catholic Church uh, or uh, neo-fascist organizations um, often, who are often kind of putting this at the forefront, like one of these groups is called the Proud Boys, you know what I mean? <laughs> They're like not making any secret of their sort of um, gender reaffirming <laughs> aspects, right? So what these kind of right-wing groups are like intuitively sensing or um, in a kind of post hoc way trying to react to is this sort of like overall, um, when I say it's a denaturalization, what I mean is specifically people are having to argue for all kinds of things which they were not anticipating having to prepare arguments for. And um, why this is happening is very complex, but it's complex and also I think quite self-perpetuating. So um, so I kind of described this like unfolding, <laughs> unfolding debate within lesbian feminism between like the mid seventies and the early nineties, um, which we're still kind of living in the wake of. Uh, and what, uh, what I think is like, what I think is so striking about it is previously, um, previously there was this sense, especially that even, um, even if we were like dealing with questions like um, minority groups, uh, sexual minority groups like lesbians or gay men or trans people kind of pursuing um, civic emancipation, there was a sense that ultimately this was a question of uh, humane treatment or perhaps uh, recognition or something like that, but that we would always kind of be comfortably, um, we would always have a situation where this would be a kind of comfortable uh, minority sort of a thing. But as generations continue to turn, um, it seems to be much less markedly the case. Like when you see surveys of like uh, sexual identification across time, especially among like today's teenagers and people in their twenties, um, we're seeing a real kind of collapse of um, like standard heterosexuality or like a, a collapse of people that really are gonna identify that way, which I think is like not something we can assume is gonna continuously uh, proceed across time. But nevertheless, it sort of left us in this situation where, um, uh, where like ways of life and um, approaches to living and kind of like uh, also communities and groups, um, which previously were kind of much more comfortably possible to think about as this subcultural um, fringe of humanity uh, at this point have um, both numerically expanded, <laughs> like, um, like obviously proportionally expanded by any measurement, which we seem to be able to do, but also kind of have lost a lot of the, um, yeah, have lost a lot of the sense of like needing to uh, justify themselves or sort of like, <laughs> well, how can I put this? For instance, I think it's like, <laughs> I think it's like, um, hmm, no, actually I'm kind of, I guess I was just thinking about gay marriage, but that's, <laughs> that's like, well, to me, it's like, it's interesting that simultaneously like, uh, simultaneously, like with gay marriage, for instance, this was like a uh, preoccupying political issue. This was one of the main kind of culture war issues which uh, George Bush and his Republican Party were mobilizing um, in the 2000s through to um, kind of these furious street protests in France, which I think if um, your listeners are not, not aware of them, I'm sure many of them will be, um, just, yeah, check out the, <laughs> the scale and the intensity of the... Um, protests led by the religious right in France um, around gay marriage and um, and yeah also the the measures which Eastern European states took um, throughout the 2010s to often like constitutionally amend out the possibility of um, homosexual marriage so this is kind of like this ongoing sort of rolling struggle but what's striking to me is it went from uh, you know it went from this like <laughs> this uh preoccupying political issue to something which is now kind of legalized in every single state. And even one of these, um, uh, even one of these books by a gender critical feminist in, in uh, Britain, even in the acknowledgements, she's saying, oh, well, you know, thanks to my wife uh, who picked me up off the floor and stuff like this. So we have a kind of like unabashed normalization um, within um, 
within even the like <laughs> even the like not exceptionally progressive parts of like um lesbian and gay life that this is now just saying which is kind of taken for granted it's like okay well you can just introduce someone as your wife even though you're a woman um so this is like this is like one of the one of the breakthroughs i think it's like not again with the thing with <laughs> well the reason I was cautious about bringing up gay marriage as an example is obviously that this is um, <laughs> how relevant um, marriage is to you has a large amount to do with your um, class position and exactly like how much wealth it's worth bothering about <laughs> like your children getting hold of, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> that's a very heavily class condition question, um, which is exactly why it became such a uh, central and primary issue for a time. Um, but yeah, so overall, I think you're definitely right that there is this um, transformative, like denaturalizing moment underway. And I agree that it's like a very hopeful thing, but it's also very unpredictable. I think that like there's a real shortage of accounts of why this is happening. And I don't even think that I'm able to provide a, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm able to provide some pointers, but I don't think I'm able to provide a comprehensive explanation of why this might be, especially not why it's happening now. But, um, but yeah, we can keep on talking about it. I guess that's, um, yeah, that's what I got to say. I think denaturalization is a fantastic, you know, brief uh, way to, to name this um, process that we're living through. And you've obviously touched on some very important political aspects of it here. And I guess we can think about this as conditions in which we've seen the rise of an unprecedented um, advocacy and then also mobilization and, and organizing for equality rights for trans people. Um, certainly it's often been fought out around human rights legislation and who's included in terms of protected categories of people, um, along with pressure for cultural acceptance and access to non-oppressive healthcare and other services for trans folks. But, so this is gonna be familiar to, to most, I'm sure all, really all listeners, um, but trans liberation politics go beyond the politics of equal rights which are the most influential today on the left and in certain parts of liberalism. So could you just sketch out as clear as you can, maybe as starkly as you can, the difference between the politics of trans liberation and the, the politics of equal rights or recognition that you were flagging earlier and why we need a politics that's a politics of liberation here? Yeah, so one place to start with this is this 2015 essay by Nat Rahab, who also has a book in the, um, sorry, she also has a chapter in the book, and what um, uh, what Raha's kind of saying in this uh, essay, uh, I think it's called The Limits of Transliberalism. It's up on the Verso blog, so your readers can go and see it. She talks about this moment where uh, Juliet Jacks, um, Juliet Jacks, who's actually a, a trans memoirist and a comrade, who's, uh, you know, she's helped us promote this book, so I'm a fan. Um, she describes in her memoir this moment where she is offered a meeting with um, uh Oh, wait, <laughs> this name is escaping me now, which is bizarre. Um, Theresa May. She's offered a meeting with Theresa May, who is at this point the Home Secretary. She's later the Prime Minister. Um, and uh, as the Home Secretary of Britain, Theresa May was kind of uh, fronting this drive to kind of get rid of um, the migrants that were there and close off the borders for further migration. And she did this in ways including like sending menacing trucks around uh, East London, um, because East London has a very large uh, first-generation migrant community, um, kind of threats telling them they should get out of the country and stuff like that if they were illegal migrants. And so basically Theresa May was in, involved in this and Juliet Jacks kind of describes her moment of uh, crisis, um, really a moment of judgment, where she's kind of like, <laughs> she's kind of left with, on the one hand, this sense that if you meet and ingratiate these powerful people and they've seen you face-to-face -face and... Uh, you like, you know, pumped hands and made small talk uh, that this is like advantageous. And on the other hand, the kind of horrific nativist violence, which this um, uh, this particular politician was kind of like uh, doing to doing to the fabric of Britain, um, and especially to the racialized minorities of Britain. So, um, so what um, what Nat Sasse is kind of trying to get at is that this is like a reoccurring. <laughs> this is like the the defining question for a certain sort of liberal lefty um, uh, kind of like kind of like trans political advocacy position, right? It's that um, to an extent the state is willing to do meet and greets and uh, incorporate you, basically bring your body, <laughs> incorporate you know bring your body into that process 
Um, but uh, on the other hand, this always comes with, uh, this is like the, this comes at a price, right? There's like a legitimation, which you're being expected to do uh, to this whole, whole theater. And um, needless to say, <laughs> needless to say, the trans people who are being included are not the uh, homeless for the most part. They're not the racialized minorities. They are, um, yeah, they're the trans people who are sort of presentable. So this is like this is like the the issue of trans liberalism, which um, which Nat I think very skillfully um, sketches out for us. And it's also like, well, what's sad about the intervening years in the case of Britain <laughs> is exactly that trans liberalism has kind of experienced this downfall, this very obvious like failure as one kind of liberal institution after another, from the Guardian newspaper to the BBC to the um, uh, uh, what are they called? EHRC, the uh, not the EHRC, the equality, yeah, the equalities bodies, and so on. One of one of them after another seemed to have like uh, devolved into this kind of foundationalist anti-trans feminism. So, um, so basically, this <laughs> how much of how much of a problem, or how much trans liberalism is the problem for trans politics, really seems to vary a lot across national contexts. So, if you're looking at the United States, I'd be interested to hear the situation in Canada. I don't know how much you know about. Um, the relative situation there. Um, definitely in the United States, like the Democratic Party has put like serious resources, like serious muscle into going through with this co-option. And in a way which I wasn't quite expecting as someone who used to like watch US politics very closely in the 2000s, um, to a degree I wasn't anticipating this kind of like pro-trans stuff has been wrapped up in the kind of partisan polarization. So Democrats versus Republicans. So like um, Republicans hate trans people because Republicans don't believe in science. That's the, <laughs> that's the kind of Democratic Party line at the moment, um, which requires, you know, a view of transition, which reduces it down to neurochemical imbalances or developmental quirks or whatever. So <laughs> long story short, um, trans liberalism is kind of booming in the United States um, for the exact same reason that it's uh, busting in Britain. And um, Right. So, so what can we do to sort of get beyond that? Well, basically, the Marxist account of what is wrong with trans liberalism is the same as the usual <laughs> Marxist account to do with liberalism, which is that um, what capitalist liberation looks like, um, what freedom looks like in a capitalist context, is the equal rights to sleep under a bridge. So, a wealthy person, a wealthy person, <laughs> can go camping, and uh, uh, you know, an Irish proletarian in the in the early 20th century is forced to move from place to place searching for work and building the motorways of, of England. That's the freedom that you get under capitalism. And this is just as true for, for questions of transition as anything else um, with, uh, yeah, with the point that specifically like, specifically what um, trans liberalism is attempting to do is like, it's just basically trying to frame uh, it's basically trying to say that, uh, like an ordinary life, <laughs> an ordinary life is possible for trans people. And, um, the best rejoinder we can offer is like, well, yeah, but an ordinary life is, is, um, reconciling yourself with overarching systems of exploitation in one way or another. And, um, I definitely don't think that suffices. I, I don't see any reason, <laughs> I don't see any reason that would suffice anymore with this, um, this set of questions than any other one, right? So that's um that's sort of where I'm coming from, and that's what um that's what seems pretty clear to me. Uh, but as I say, this is like um this is one of those things where it, it um how pressing this is as a concern is very much to do with the local like national climate and how um how amenable the local liberal parties and establishment are towards like uh this kind of recognition and this kind of like um extension of uh, civic rights. Okay, actually I have one more thing to say. Sorry, I've already gone on for a while. And um, <laughs> one thing to say is actually about the EU. So uh, so one of the stories to talk about here is Ireland. So like in Ireland, uh, the um, on paper rights, which trans people enjoy are pretty remarkable. So the self-identification that has been for quite some years now, if you want to trans your gender, you make uh, a sworn statement um, which is like signed by a notary, and then that's all you have to do. Um, uh, so there's all of these like on paper, like remarkable provisioning. 
And yet the actual like lived reality of the Irish trans people I talk to is defined both by this like intractable uh, healthcare breakdown and then also just like a prevailing hostility, uh, which um, I don't want to oversimplify it, but like they don't, yeah, they don't report like, <laughs> they don't report that these on paper things kind of amount to like uh, a widespread kind of like cultural acceptance of their positions. And there's also obviously part of Ireland is, is being occupied by the British state um, of, of late. <laughs> and um, and in um, the occupied parts of Ireland, you have the, uh, yeah, you have trans life being defined by the same kind of sectarian divisions. You have like a parallel development of different trans communities across uh, the nationalist and uni unionist communities there. So, um, uh, so, Right. So anyway, long story short, it doesn't really <laughs> like like civic civic emancipation um, in the event. Uh, it doesn't really it doesn't really seem to to like amount to um, the actual kind of like meaningful change that I want to see. And um, yeah, for that reason, I think like uh, with the, the book and so on, we've had a fair amount of like a fair amount of interest and a fair amount of dialogue with Irish um socialists, communists, ecologists, anarchists, and so on, who are like, um, yeah, I guess it's like, <laughs> it's an obvious like um, case in point, I guess I'd say. Maybe just picking up on this, so contrasting the civic emancipation, equal rights with trans liberation, what would you identify as being the key sort of social material changes that would need to be won in order to actually lay the basis for liberation? Do you think about like what what are the what are the, the the foundations there that we would want to pinpoint? Um, I think that the I think that the I think that the key issues are like um, in a way the most remarkably basic things you can think of like like how could you how could you possibly have an emancipatory outcome when the labor markets are still largely being controlled by private individuals and their like decisive prejudices. Like um, one of the major issues if we're talking about like uh, proletarianization of trans people. So I'm saying proletarianization as in like people not having control over their workplaces or control over their, the, the way they spend their time and their lives um, for that reason. Um, well, I guess with unemployment of trans people, this is like a, a, a thing which is pretty persistently true um, actually across national contexts is like a huge um, chunk of trans people just unable to find consistent work, um, especially consistent work, which is not outlawed. <laughs> so, um, so like, uh, and a lot of the reason is, is, is there have been like consistent surveys of, of um, employers and their attitudes. And there's simply this like widespread, um, not only reluctance, but straight out refusal um, to accept hiring a trans person. And that's something which I've, I've seen studies on that from various different contexts. And it seems like uh, <laughs> as much as like broader, <laughs> as much as like broader social attitudes are changing and as much variation as there is um, on this point, uh, it is very inconsistent industry from industry is what I mean now. Um, as much as broader social changes are underway, actually reforming the attitudes of um, <laughs> the actual bourgeoisie is a much more gradual process let's say. And uh, for that reason, yeah, there's, there's like, um, yeah, there's widespread um, inability of trans people to work. So, um, so you get kind of this question where it's like, well, what would, <laughs> what, what would an end to that look like? <laughs> and uh, well, I know what my end to that would look like, but I, I think you can see how like, this is one of those instances where it's like, this is one, this is one issue which you kind of like, you only have, um, you sort of only have two options. And one is like, a uh, gradual cultural uh, transformation and hoping for the best and hoping that every uh, capitalist industry gradually transforms to look like the uh, the tech employers of Silicon Valley, um, which to me seems quite unlikely, uh, or some kind of shift towards uh, worker control. So, yeah, that's, um, I mean, maybe there are other options I'm not thinking of, you tell me. Well, I think that's really worth mentioning because of the way, especially that the, the the workplace has become, in a sense, marginal to the way a lot of radical politics thinks about politics. So I think just naming that is really important um, since, uh, yeah, for, for various reasons, I think that's you know, there's been a retreat from the workplace as a focus for um, radical 
radical politics, certainly in, in the part of the world where I live. Um, but then I guess there's just also the, the also the questions about bodily autonomy and self-determination and what kinds of uh, conditions we would need to uh, create in order to make that something that's as real for people in their everyday lives that it, it brings up. Um, so I think if we could move on, I, I want to bring, bring up the question about um, the implication of, of transliberation um, for cis people, um, in short, so people who are um, living in the same gender that they were assigned at birth. And I think there are some cis people on the left who say that they support transliberation, but really think it's fundamentally an issue for trans people. However, the kind of socialism from below politics that I support sees all liberation struggles, struggles against particular forms of oppression, as having universal implications. Uh, on the one hand, they directly affect working class people who are part of dominant groups and anybody else who's committed to going beyond capitalism. So in this case, working class cis people. Uh, but these politics of liberation also contribute to the project of human emancipation more, more broadly. So in the case of trans liberation, I think it has implications for cis working class people that go beyond our responsibility to combat the oppression of trans people and to support trans comrades' self-organization and struggles. And I think trans liberation contributes to the politics of universal human emancipation. So I'm interested, if, is that similar to how you see things? Um, and what do you see as the universal implications of the effort to, if you like, abolish cis supremacy? That's a, that's really a remarkable question, <laughs> both set of questions. So you were saying, yeah, you see this universal, um, this universal emancipation, uh, oh yeah, you said human emancipation, um, kind of being hatched out of the liberation of this particular group. Um, well, that's definitely what I think. So uh, yeah, I believe that there are these, the, well, simultaneously the, the emancipation is universal, but also in a sense, the struggle is kind of <laughs> universal. And when I say the struggle here, I mean, um, not just class war, although that's very important, but also the um, the struggle to kind of work out a workable <laughs> a workable form of life, a workable thing to call yourself, uh, or way to move <laughs> through the world. These are all um, these are all things which everyone is having to cope with in our own ways. And um, well, I guess to speak about myself for a moment, I don't really <laughs> I don't really consider. Um, I don't really consider anything I'm ex saying um, primarily like an extension of my own, uh, what they call your your lived experience. Uh, like, <laughs> I think what's interesting to me is often like dead experience, you know, and dead labor as well. Like, uh, I think that that really what um, what I would like to do and what I think the, um, the people I'm in dialogue with are trying to do is kind of provide this account of what, um, what on earth it is that happens between the Oh, mid nineteenth century to like the mid twentieth, where like suddenly all of these um, all of these features of uh, of the human physique and of um, development or whatever else you want to call it, all of these features start to be kind of like recognized in a new light. There are these uh, there's this real sequence of technological breakthroughs which extends um, roughly from the discovery of like stress hormones, so the vivisection of animals, like to remove their um, adrenal glands, which uh, French um, <laughs> French physiologists were doing in the late 19th century, through to the um, uh, very rapid and sequential discovery of um, the major um, bodily hormones between like the 1910s and the early 1950s. I think melatonin was like the last major one which we got in 1952. But yeah, you get this um, you get this very rapid technological set of breakthroughs which. Um, sort of leave our understanding of human phys physiology and all of this kind of reeling and still in a way are something we're trying to resolve because what this opens up is that there's this mutability um of our uh physiology of also our anatomy um and the interplay of those two things and um that's kind of what we start to deal with so there are some really um widely understood examples of that so obviously one is birth control so this was one of the major kind of technological um, interlocking concerns of um, the civil rights movement um, back in the mid 20th century. Uh, so, well, mid to late 20th century, let's say. And um, yeah, so there are, there are a, a, huge, um, a huge range of different breakthroughs and sort of ongoing struggles, which like all of us are just having to 
make sense of and cope with. And um, yeah, and that's thing which um, which it needs to be said, like that's something which places particular burdens or particular um, opportunities even um, for specific minority groups. And in many cases, um, actually directs and sort of like causes a lot of the harm which um, people are going through. So a lot of my like political activity in recent years has been intersex activism. So this is one of the things I've kind of been concerning myself with. And obviously intersex people are one of these uh, groups which um, it's hard to say that this like, endocrine revolution or this kind of like hormonal understanding breakthrough it's hard to say that this um <laughs> set of breakthroughs actually had positive outcomes for intersex people because exactly the refined understanding was then used as a, a set of justifications for a lot of the um medicalized violence which intersex people have been encountering um which only kind of intensified around the mid-20th century in fact it became much more routinized with the industrialization of childbirth um, which was occurring around that time. So um, so what I'm trying to say is that specific uh, minority groups and specific um, specific sections of the population are at once being given uh, like socially mandated burdens and even violence on a routinized level um, as this process is unfolding. But equally, um, opportunities and like prospects for emancipation are appearing. But um, But none of this really seems to happen uh, none of this happens without um, conflict, which is very much run through the division of labor. So, um, so yeah, so if you're a, a trans person who has identified your dysphoria and um, realizes that this dysphoria is connected with uh, potentially fatal mental health problems you've been experiencing for much of your life, if you realize this, then um, you still have another struggle <laughs> to go through. Like this recognition is something which then needs to be... Um, uh, well, if you want to do things legally, you have to provide an account of yourself to various medical professionals. So here in Austria, it would be four medical professionals. You have to have three mental health professionals and then one endocrinologist who can prescribe you the drugs. So um, that's the kind of thing that I mean. So these, um, <laughs> basically, these these like technological, um, biochemical, physiological breakthroughs of understanding um, then sort of just ground us in struggles which are unabashedly social or institutional um, in their character. So yeah, so like, um, so this stuff which I'm saying, it shouldn't be seen as like, it should definitely not be seen as like me outlining um, what we're gonna do <laughs> or what uh, you need to support us doing. It's more like, um, yeah, I'm more like trying to sketch out a set of problems which all of us are kind of plunged into and each of us are just trying to make sense of uh, the best we can. When I say us there, I mean like any, human being, actually, <laughs> human being of whatever class position, really. But, um, but yeah, so, so that kind of sets us up to like, um, well, my contention, my, my commitment is that I think with all that said, uh, with all that said, this is like a, this is a universal human problem or a set of universal human problems, which each of us confronts. Um, but we, <laughs> we ultimately can't just get out of it as humans. Um, we sort of, yeah, there has to be like class struggle of one kind or another, whether that's, um, you know, showing up with an advocate to a, a doctor or uh, campaigning at a hospital to stop the surgeries against intersex infants born there, which is something which has been done very successfully in Chicago recently. Uh, that's what it looks like. <laughs> like the struggle, <laughs> the struggle is what moves us out of the human and into um, something a bit more particular. Thank you. And I guess I would just pick up on your earlier point where you named denaturalization and just say that I think that there's a way in which all liberation struggles have a very strong denaturalizing impulse um, because of the way that oppression is so generally naturalized by, you know, by the oppressors. And so the, the calling into question um, of gender in a, in a much more profound way that, you know, I mean, obviously this is something which feminism has, uh, brought to the, the left more broadly, but I think that trans liberation politics just uh, changes and builds on that in a way which is, uh, has, you know, significant implications for everybody um, in, in, in quite a, a progressive and positive way. I guess one thing, one thing with feminism, uh, one thing with feminism is that simultaneously, I don't think trans liberation can be 
reduced to it. Like less and less am I convinced that it's helpful to talk about trans feminism. That's not something I'm really minded to develop myself. Um, no shade on people who are, but I don't see that term as very useful these days. So I don't think trans liberation can be like reduced to like an adjunct or like a variation on feminism. However, <laughs> it's like inarguable that a lot of the stuff we're discussing and a lot of the breakthroughs and a lot of the social conflicts which we're currently engaged with would have been very difficult to conceive of without, let's say, feminism and the women's movement um, very loosely defined. Uh, yeah, which has, has been an ongoing thing since, again, the, well, longer than the late 19th century, but very visibly since then. So a lot of the, yeah, but I, I can't really go into it, but a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the differentiation which makes this stuff so uh, so easily naturalized is what exactly what has been kind of shaken and um, cast into doubt by uh, by the women's movement. And um, that is kind of this ongoing conundrum, I think, for trans liberation, that how is it that some of the fiercest um, transphobic, <laughs> or let's say, uh, detractors of trans liberation um, come from the exact movement which made it possible? Um, this is this is a big a big conundrum which I'm happy to like chat about more another time. But I think that's like an ongoing set of questions I've got, and I especially find it striking how a lot of um, a lot of like the cutting edge of social theory are sort of like shying away from talking about feminism, talking about gender. So this is um, Jules Jules Gil Peterson is one example which I mentioned earlier. But there's also like say um, Andrea Longchu's book Females, uh, Sophie Lewis's book full surrogacy now these are books which like um i think in previous generations would have clearly been seen as like part of um uh you know feminist theory but which explicitly kind of distance themselves from being books about gender and uh trying to kind of like do something else um so i find that really remarkable and i find it something which i don't um i don't have an easy answer to i don't think there is an easy answer to because um uh, I am someone who's been fascinated with like feminist theory for a long while, but it's very striking that many people kind of including myself have um, felt this fatigue with it or <laughs> this, um, this sense that uh, obviously there is always a plurality of, of different feminist perspectives, but like the internal fight between those has, seems to have become less and less preoccupying um, for theorists around my age. Thank you. So um, I guess one more question before we um, talk about the book. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add about, in, in the broadest possible terms, how you see the relationship between the fight for trans liberation on the one hand and the struggle to break with capitalism and start the transition towards a classless and stateless society on the other? Yeah, that's a great question. A classless and a stateless society. Well, well, the thing with the... <laughs> I think with the stateless society, a lot of... Um, I think a lot of the time, like, transition sort of overlaps with people moving across national contexts, and um, this happens in a lot of ways, and it uh, definitely includes but isn't kind of reducible to the experience of people who become refugees. Um, but uh, very often it seems like displacement or distancing from your original um, national context is just part of trans life, and... Um, in a way, it makes things a lot easier, you know, you defamiliarize yourself with your surroundings, you move to a new city, you move to a, a new set of people, you reintroduce yourself. Um, and this is something which I uh, I write about in a piece I co-wrote with a friend of mine, uh, Nathaniel Dixon, who also has a chapter in the book, by the way, called The Future of Trans Politics. And this this is up on the, yeah, you can search for it on Google, The Future of Trans Politics, and that, that will come up. Um, so yeah, this question of like a stateless society, I've got a lot to say about nationalism and like, um, I basically just don't think it's a coincidence that uh, nationalists have become so um, preoccupied with, with uh, transition as this, this perceived threat, um, this kind of like wandering folk devil, um, <laughs> which of course used to appear in an ethnic sense and now has reappeared in a, a gender sense. Um, in the nationalist kind of imaginary. Uh, so that's the kind of stateless aspect. But with the classless thing, um, uh, yeah, well, I think, like I, like I said before, I see these, these concerns as, as like, uh, in, a, in a way, it's the, same, it's the same answer we Marxists offer to everything. It's, it's like, um, uh, yeah, like, like the classless society has to be the, 
anything short of a classless society, I don't think really provides a meaningful emancipation. It just, uh, yeah, I suppose it, it diversifies the people sleeping under bridges or at least, um, you know, whatever, on, on, uh, on the surface it diversifies the uh, elite workforces. But then this is always only like a sliver of the overall population, right? So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's the relationship. Like we've got to, we've got to do it. In this piece I was just writing for Missy Mag, um, uh, with Ella Rook. Um, this is one of the things which I say, which is just like, in a way we can see trans liberation. It's, it's still the means, like it can never, it can never be an end. Like even if we, um, wh whatever kind of humiliation or defeat, um, we, uh, we affect <laughs> on, uh, on like, uh, those who advocate against our rights, like whatever successful campaign we wage against um, fascists or transphobic feminists or whoever else, this is not really the the aim. This is not really the victory which we're we're going for. It might be like a secondary goal <laughs> along the way, um, kind of like a milestone. But um, but yeah, it's not. It, it's never going to suffice to defeat fascism and nationalism and transphobic feminism and whatever else. Like that's never going to be. Um, that's never going to be our, our end goal. The end goal has to be communism. All right. So let's talk about the book a little bit. Since um, along with Ella O'Rourke, you co-edited Transgender Marxism, which is published by Pluto Press. Um, it's a collection of chapters that came out in early 2021. So could you tell listeners who don't know about this book a little bit about what's in the book and how you came to work on it and what the response to it has been? Yeah. So Transgender Marxism came out in May and uh, it is... 14 chapters as well as an introduction and an afterword, uh, which are collected from like a pretty broad range of different Marxist theorists who um, both of us, like myself and Al, uh, were already um, in touch with or reached out with or reached out to um, because both of us were of the opinion that there was a tremendous amount of this thinking and in fact, um, a really remarkable a uh, number of breakthroughs and um, insights which were already kind of underway and which were already constantly being churned out and generated um, by the people who were in our broader social circles and people who we were um, in political struggles with and people who we just kind of, um, you know, we were familiar with mostly, mostly from the internet. But the nature of this... Um, production, this kind of theoretical production, was that a lot of it was on very uh, ephemeral and very kind of privatized spaces. Um, so people would share things to their social media account and maybe only their friends would see it or they would share something, <laughs> you know, share something to their Instagram stories or their, their Snapchat even. And then of course it would disintegrate within a matter of hours. So we decided there had to be a more kind of lasting and a more kind of hefty um, anthology of this kind of material. So pretty much everything in the book with one exception was like written exclusively for the collection. And yeah, there's like all kinds of different uh, topics from like um, workplace struggles and um, kind of the ethnography of workplace struggles, which like two or three of the essays are about through to like psychoanalysis um, and uh, <laughs> and like the implications of, of transgender experience for that and how we can make sense of it to um, personal accounts of uh, people's experiences um, living either in the US or in uh, Lancaster, Lancaster in, in the middle of England. Um, and uh, yeah, so we've got like a collection of a very broad range of both topics and approaches from, yeah, all kinds of, all kinds of remarkable transgender Marxists. And um, that's, yeah, that's what the pair of us were uh, hoping to do and so far the reception of it has been like really good we've been having a lot of very <laughs> like I don't know I've been having a lot of fascinating conversations I will say things have been a bit slow due to COVID like we're planning on going for a tour and stuff and um, also people have been very busy so like not everyone has been able to completely <laughs> like read the thing cover to cover but um, but yeah that's the fun part of an anthology like even the <laughs> even the um, yeah people have been kind of seeding different ideas and different um, different discussions from that book out already. So it's been really beautiful to see. And I'm really hoping that it's gonna, gonna like, uh, yeah, continue to like proliferate and really encourage some more uh, blossoming of this, this type of thinking and this type of organizing as well. Oh, certainly, um, I would encourage everybody listening to check it out and I'll put a link 
to the book in the, the show notes. Um, I certainly, when I read it this summer, it was one of the more memorable things I read this summer. And uh, yeah, there's a wide range of different kinds of material in the book. Um, so depending on what people are most interested in, they're likely to find something that will really resonate with them. Um, and I guess as we move towards wrapping up, uh, I would just like to ask, since you've already talked about transliteration and its relationship to the struggle for human emancipation, which of course should be the heart of Marxism. Is there anything more that you'd like to say about what transgender Marxism, you know, if we think about that as a, a Marxism grounded in what you and L uh, in the introduction to the book called Trans Life as it's lived, um, what that brings to Marxism as a project of revolutionary theory and practice in general? Cool. Well, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I suppose this is the, uh, this is the dimension which often Mm, Marxists get a bit uh, skittish or a bit wary about uh, trans life as it is lived. These kind of like ethical dimensions um, are very often seen which Marxism doesn't really uh, foreground or doesn't play up. And indeed, um, uh, Marx is quite notable as, as one of the most influential thinkers in history who never prepared like a moral or an ethical treatise and kind of had an avoidance of discussing these topics. Nevertheless, I feel like um, when it comes to trans stuff, there's always this kind of like ethical dimension because ultimately these um, a transition is an, in a sense uh, a coerced choice, right? It's uh, something which you feel compelled to choose, but something which you um, decide upon in one way or another. And um, that's uh, that's that's kind of the um, that's kind of the nature of it. But what I am also interested in, I suppose, is that it also makes me think about another topic, which is interested me for quite a while, which is that due to historical circumstances, um, <laughs> Marxists have this peculiar position of being these kind of systemic thinkers um, very often in a context, uh, yeah, increasingly often in a context where they are sort of the oddballs and the fringe. And um, <laughs> if you identify someone as a communist, I think um, <laughs> to most of the wider population, this is quite a re remarkable identifier. And this is something which maybe uh, they probably wouldn't know very many other people who were uh, described that way. Uh, and like I say, the reasons for that are very historical. Like this was a purposeful um, mission which various um, liberal and also conservative, but especially liberal institutions made sure of with red baiting and uh, reds under the bed and all of that. Um, but the upshot is, is that um, both kind of like being transgender and being a communist are these uh, minoritized <laughs> positions in a way which I think... Um, I think we need to kind of like try and make sense of. And uh, that's that's kind of like, that's one of the things I was, I was trying to get at. But um, uh, but yeah, wait, there was one more thing I wanted to say. Oh yeah, and that was about this collection. So one thing about the collection is we didn't have very many Canadians. So if there's anyone listening who wants to reach out to me, I don't think we're going to do a transgender Marxism too anytime soon, but I would really, <laughs> I would really love to be in touch with, um, yeah, I'd be love, love to be in touch with some more comrades from Canada. I know a few, but I'm um, quite busy. <laughs> um, and then last question, um, I guess for many people, anyone who's listening who uh, is clearly committed to trans liberation and has no questions about that, but may still have some questions about Marxism and whether, you know, why, why did trans liberation politics need Marxism? What would be your, your offering there? Yeah, well, this is an easy one in a way. <laughs> what I think that Marxism does mm, better than any other revolutionary tradition I'm familiar with. Uh, yeah, better than anyone I'm familiar with. It has this attention to the interplay of sensuous reality. So the um, sensual, the immediate features of our life. Um, it has an attention and it has a, uh, in a way it has an affection for, for our lives as we experience it. And um, everything from uh, commodities, to um, the like, the reality of what it's like to be part of a workforce, which, like in Capital, Marx describes as reducing the the, the workers are kind of rendered into into dead labor. Uh, he uses this this term galata, the um, the German word for like a gelatine paste, and so on. That's what um, abstract labor is for Marx. Um, it has this kind of attention to our actual like sensuous conditions um, without, I think, sacrificing the kind of the super sensual, as Marx says, the kind of like overarching, the abstract, um, the kind of like uh, the thing which makes these things appear in these recognizable forms across time. 
Um, so yeah, so Marx, Marx has this attention to like the sensual and the super sensual. And I think like people who followed in that, uh, followed in that trajectory and developed that thinking have done a really remarkable amount to try and like bring those, th those two things together. And that's like, um, yeah, that's, I guess that's what I get from, from Marxism more than anything else. With that being said, <laughs> with that being said, I'm a, I'm not a very reliable partisan. I love reading anarchist theory. I love reading um, anti-colonial material, whether it's like vintage or contemporary, um, all of this stuff. I'm the kind of person who, you know, I, I wrote these two essays about gender abolition, even though I'm not a gender abolitionist. So like, I like, uh, I try and, I try and kind of get through all sorts of revolutionary thinking. And um, I think each revolutionary tradition has its own beautiful features and it's like its own kind of like uh, truth to bring into to bear. But that's specifically what I think, um, that's specifically, that's, that's like why I'm, uh, why I'm affiliated <laughs> with this school. Um, that's, that's what I get out of it. So I've really enjoyed this conversation a great deal. And thank you very much to anyone who's listened all the way through um, as well. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.